Hey everyone, just a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Reviews help us move up in the search rankings so we can reach more cyclists. You can also support us by sharing our podcast with your friends or on social media. Thanks for listening. Here's the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood, here with my co-host, Jason Hammond. Hey, Todd. How's it going? Going well. Another week of distance podcasting, which seems to be the norm, but I think we seem to have a good handle on it. So hopefully another week of smooth distance podcasting. Yep. Apologies in advance if there's any um, errant noises or anything like that. Uh, So Todd, today we're going to talk about the basics of nutrition. Specifically, we're going to focus on macronutrients. So there's there's quite a bit to nutrition, but let's just focus on the macro stuff. And what does that mean? The macronutrients are the nutrients that can be measured in grams. So whereas micronutrients, you would measure them in milligrams. That's the distinction. And so we're going to focus on the three macronutrients, fat, protein, and carbs. And we're going to talk about how they fit into the diet of a cyclist. Um, Specifically, we want to focus on people training eight or more hours a week. Um, If you train less than eight hours a week, you probably could follow a more standard diet, just a a more neutral diet. But this information could still be useful because really the goal is to have enough information to make good dietary decisions based on your understanding of how the macronutrients fit together into an athlete's diet. So hopefully this can get you started down that road. Yeah, I think nutrition is actually one of those things that maybe even a, a general public generally speaking, but even as athletes, I think we don't necessarily always grasp and always optimize. So I think there's a lot we can do just with the basic understanding that we'll probably touch on today. That's super helpful. And I think you bring up a good point with the general population is as cyclists, our diets are definitely very different than a lot of the advice that you would give to a sedentary person or a slightly active person. And the total energy demands of cycling is higher than basically any other sport. That one study on, I think it was the Lithuanian Olympic team where they looked at their diets. Cyclists were by far the highest calorie burners with cross-country runners coming in second. And it's just because of the amount of time we spend on our bikes. So our demands are different and our diets are different as a response to that to make sure we have the energy we need. And so that's the first key point is the number one thing that we should get out of nutrition is making sure we have the energy to complete the workout for the day and then making sure we have enough energy to complete tomorrow's workout and then the workout after that. And really the the point is we need the energy to get the training stimulus to be the cyclist we want to be. Yeah. And this is something that you think point out nicely is cumulative, right? You just because you did nutrition right on Monday doesn't mean you're set for the rest of the week. You have to do it right on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and all throughout your week and all throughout your training blocks to really have the effect that you want. And I think the other piece that you pointed out is cycling is different. It requires a lot more energy. And at least here in the U.S., if you look at most nutrition labels, it's all keyed around a 2000 calorie diet. We both know that on a long ride, you can easily exceed that just on the energy demands for your ride um, before you talk about what happens in the rest of your day. So our energy demands in a given day can be two, two and a half times, sometimes more if you had a big day on the bike of what is typically printed on a label that you're going to look at. Right. So you are jumping a little bit ahead, but now is a good time to jump into this, uh, this area that Todd's talking about. So let's start off with the definition of a calorie. So we want to start 
basic, just to cover all the bases, and the calorie is a unit of energy. It's a way to measure the heat production of something, specifically in this case it's food. So a calorie is the amount of heat that can be produced by consuming the food, and it's a way to measure the energy of something that you put in your body. And, and that's useful because we're burning energy and we need some sort of metric to say, how much energy am I burning? So they've chosen the calorie. And there's this idea of a caloric balance, which is when you eat the same amount of calories that you burn, that would be a caloric balance. And that basically means you're not gaining weight and you're also not losing weight. There is this balance between the energy consumed and the energy burned. There is this common weight loss technique called calories in, calories out, which is basically this idea that if we use more energy than we consume, then we lose weight. And this makes sense on like a physics level. If, if a system uses more energy than it takes in, it's the, the mass or the energy of the system decreases. This makes sense. But it's actually kind of complicated because when we eat more calories, we actually get more active because we, we have the energy we need to be more active. And also our body metabolizes different calorie sources differently. So there's a lot of information that goes into it. And this idea of calories in, calories out is it's a good principle. This idea that we need to meet the energy that we consume with the energies that we intake. But it's complicated because different foods do different things to our body. And, and we have to respect that there's, there's a lot that goes into getting your diet right. Yeah, it works for your bank account. It may not work for your caloric intake. I guess the other thing I'll throw on here is if you really want to dig into your physics book, um, when you talk about a calorie, that's actually one one thousandth of the unit that we're talking about in food. Uh, a food calorie is actually a kilocalorie. We drop the K for convenience and just uh, well, only, it as a only oh, in the US, capital though. C. Yeah, that's true. Well, in other places, do kilojoules as well, right? Yeah, um, as a form of energy. So. Yes. In the U.S., we just use a big C calorie and it's equivalent to a kilocalorie in the rest of the world and standard measure. Yep. So th that's a good point in case, um, well, I mean, we have a significant international audience so they can uh, get on track with all this. So let's understand the total caloric intake for a day a little bit better. And Todd, you touched on this a little bit. And the, the basic metabolic rate for a human, this assumes you're laying in bed, you're doing nothing, you're warm enough, and this term is basal metabolic rate, and this is the the idea is how much does your body burn without doing anything? This is just normal processes like making sure your heart pumps, making sure your brain still has enough oxygen, making sure all these vital functions occur. It's something like 1,500 to 2,000 calories. It could be more for a taller person, it could be less for a shorter person, uh, total body mass has an effect. but you know, we don't need to dive in it too much. Just think about this sort of 1,500 to 2,000 calories. And this is the diet that Todd mentioned is for sedentary people. Normally, they aim for about 2,000 calories. And the idea here is that when you wake up, you go to the bathroom, you make breakfast, you walk to work from your car, you know, in the parking lot, you, you go to the bathroom again. All, all of these activities, they burn a little bit more than your basal metabolic rate. So you add something like another 500 calories throughout the day, just your sedentary lifestyle causes you to burn some calories. And so if you add your basal metabolic rate and this additional 500 calories, you're in that 2000 range, maybe a little bit higher. And so that's that metric for achieving a caloric balance for a sedentary person that may, may do only a few activities. 
But actually for cyclists, we have a lot more calories burned in our workouts. And if you have a power meter, a good way to get an idea of how many calories you burn is to look at the kilojoules on your ride. And so kilojoules is another unit of energy. And there's this weird conversion where our body is only about a quarter efficient and four kilojoules make up a calorie or, or there's some conversion where essentially they're they're about right it's slightly more it's not quite a four to one but it's close it's close enough when you factor in the fact that 25 percent efficient is would be shockingly high for most cyclists right like 23 is pretty good um and so it it works out that it's a it's a very rough approximation yeah, so essentially the, this kilojoule value can be thought of as about a calorie. And to give you some context, an hour at endurance is something like 600 calories for most of us. So if you do a two-hour endurance ride, you're burning 1,200 calories, which gets you halfway to this sedentary lifestyle's caloric burn. So you do a four-hour endurance ride, and you've doubled your daily caloric demand. So having respect for the amount of energy you burn and also being able to quantify the amount of energy you burn because you have this kilojoule, you have these calories to use, that's, that's really valuable. So make sure you pay attention to, if you have a power meter, make sure you pay attention to the number of kilojoules you burn and get that in your head a little bit about how many calories you need for a day. It's also useful sometimes in retrospect if you feel a little gassed at the end of a ride to look back at the kilojoules and ask yourself what you ate that day. And you, you may find you came up a little short. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So I have an example for calories. Say your basal metabolic rate is 1800. You burn 500 calories a day for daily tasks. You do a two hour endurance ride. That's another 1200. And you end up with 3,500 calories that are burned that day. And our goal is to make sure we eat back all of those calories. And it doesn't have to be exact, but you should get close. But respecting how many calories 15, 30, sorry, 3,500 calories is, that's equivalent to 35 bananas or 38 gel packets in a single day. That's, that's the amount of food you need to get the energy back that you burned throughout the day. So, so I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go for 38 gel packets, but that's probably also like... I don't know, a couple of Big Macs. I don't, I don't know the exact conversion for those who are junk food junkies. Like it, it's not, I mean, you know, Big Macs are fatty or whatever, you know, fast food hamburger you want to reference. There's a lot of calories in those, but it's still several of them to yeah, get to that I, number. I was actually going to say like two and a half or three uh, Big Macs would probably no. hit that. So understanding, I mean, you'd have to include the fries naturally. Of course, that would be unnatural to not. So I, I would actually encourage you to look at the nutritional labels on the foods that you commonly eat and get a ballpark idea of how many calories are in each serving and how large each serving is. So uh, maybe one time actually measuring out the quarter cup of rice and cooking it and saying, okay, this is how much rice is 140 calories worth of carbs or getting your head around the calorie amount of these foods that you commonly eat. Can help you get a better idea and do what Todd said, which is look back at your diet. If you have a sluggish ride, look at look back at your day and say, how much cereal did I have? How much uh, complex carbs did I have in this meal? It, it helps you wrap your head around things that you are consuming and also potentially limiters in your riding. If, if you don't have the energy to finish your workout, you're not going to get the training stimulus you want. You're not going to get the, the training response that you want. Yeah. And I think if you look at 
food or you look at a, a cereal, for example, say, oh, I'm going to eat one serving and I'm going to go on a four-hour endurance ride, that's probably not enough. You know, that's built for somebody who's going to go to the office and walk around a little bit all day, not for somebody who's going to go out and do you know, 2,000 calories worth of exercise. And, you know, of course, there's glycogen. Of course, there's fat burning. There's other things happening there. But just be mindful of that, that that one serving that's on the box is probably not indicated for, well, it's certainly not indicated for your athletic endeavors, unless it's a you know, specific sports product. It's indicated for uh, a normal person. And so you better think about maybe having a serving and a half or two, depending on you know, your size and the de- desired training volume of that day. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And the whole idea is just is consciously kind of quantifying everything. I, I wouldn't get bogged down in the exact numbers, but you could even just look at the cereal and say, oh, this has 150 calories and I'm going to burn 2000 calories on my ride. It's not going to be enough. That's kind of simple math, simple physics. And at that point, then you can say, okay, well, what other foods do I need? Do I need to bring some foods with me? Do I need two servings of cereal? Uh, it just gets the conversation going on how much you need to actually fuel. So let's jump into the macronutrients themselves. So we're going to start with protein and just give you a little context of what protein is. Uh, protein is it's a molecule that's made up of 20 amino acids. So we have in our bodies 20 different amino acids and 11 of them can be produced by the body from other molecules, from the food you eat. And nine of them are called essential amino acids and they can't be produced. You have to eat these essential amino acids. And the point of that is you need to make sure you get some of these in your diet because protein is used to repair and induce proper body function. For example, enzymes, which we've definitely talked about enzymes on other episodes. They're a molecule that's used to facilitate cell function. They control a lot of different activities within the body. They're proteins, and sometimes they break down and we need to build new enzymes to replace them. And we need the protein that we consume in order to make these enzymes. And the classic example is that protein is used to repair muscles. And we, ha- we have micro tears that occur from exercise and the protein allows us to repair these muscles, but also respecting that a- there are a lot of other processes that use protein. So understanding that there's a lot of benefits to eating protein. Yeah. I mean, if you have a tissue in the body, it's probably has some protein content in it you know, that's made its structural components. And so you need to have the amino acids available as the building blocks, which you're going to get by consuming the proteins and breaking them down to their component parts. And then your body is going to use that reservoir and use that resource to build whatever is needed, whether it's enzymes that you're short on or muscle protein that you need, or it's, you know, some other tissue that needs repair, your body is going to take those raw building blocks and put it back together. So that's why you need to have that reserve available to build up whatever needs to be repaired. Right. And so on the topic of the use of proteins, specifically, I want to note that protein can account for up to 10% of energy demands. And so some in some scenarios, it, it accounts for five, it accounts for zero, but there aren't there isn't a lot of re- research showing that it accounts for more than 10%. And the point is, we shouldn't really consider protein to be an energy source. If only 10% comes from protein, that means 90% has to come from fat and carbs. So we really should be focusing on those if our concern is energy. 
The real focus of protein is on its ability to repair and maintain proper body function. So when we're eating protein, when we're thinking about protein, we're thinking about recovery. In terms of what foods that have protein, some good foods are, for example, meat, dairy, nuts and seeds, and tofu as well is a good option if you're a vegetarian. And actually, Todd, I don't know if you eat tofu, but I find that tofu is actually really light on the stomach which can be advantageous. Some uh, meats tend to be a bit heavier, and so if you want something that's not quite as bulky, you could go for tofu. There's my little shameless plug to the tofu industry. You're welcome. But actually, there's also protein in almost all the foods we eat. For example, one mm -hmm. serving of pasta has five grams of protein in it. If we're going to talk about uh, how much protein we should consume in a day, I think a good ballpark number is 100 to 125 grams of protein. One serving of pasta, you're probably eating two or maybe two and a half servings. You're getting 10 grams of protein just from that pasta. You're already 10% of the way to your protein intake. And so it's not hard to hit your protein numbers, but you do have to, you do have to try a little bit. So more yeah, references. Uh, Go ahead. Well, you, you may be saying this, as I say, that the typical recommendation for endurance athletes in terms of protein, like, yeah, that, that number you threw out for most people is going to work. Um, I believe is in, in the range of 0.6 to 0.8 grams of protein per pound body weight. If you're in, you know, on the Imperial system, I can't, I'm not that astute to be able to convert that to a metric on the fly, but for the, the folks that are using the Imperial system, you know, 0.6 to 0.8 grams of protein per pound body weight per day. And for most folks, that's going to get you in that hundred ish range, uh, at least in the like, endurance athlete population. And just for a little more context, um, a deck of cards sized piece of meat is about 25 grams of protein. And so I know, at least in the US, there's this uh, desire to have two, three, four decks of cards worth of meat in a typical meal. And actually, you don't need that much. A, a deck of cards is um, pretty small. And that's 25 grams. That's a quarter or a fifth of your protein intake for the day. So I, I would say a good bet is to get your post-ride shake, that's 25 grams of carbs, get your a meat or another protein source at lunch, that's another 25 grams of carbs, and then get another deck of cards worth of meat at dinner, and you're at 75 grams of carbs already. And then you know you have your pasta, you have your brown rice, you get a little bit more, you're edging up to that 100 grams, maybe even a little bit higher. And so that's all it takes to hit your, your protein demands is make sure you have a protein source at lunch, make sure you have a protein source at dinner, make sure you have your post-ride shake, and you're going to make it. Yeah, it's not hard. And I think we sometimes make the mistake of believing that protein only comes in these meats or cheeses or or eggs or what have you. And to your point, and so common to mistakes like, oh, well, it's carb, it's, it's, a ri it's rice, it's carbs, it doesn't have protein. Yeah, actually it does. Like, so many of the foods, if you look on that label, unless it's pure sugar or something you know, of the like, most foods you're eating have some protein in them, small amounts, and that adds up over the course of the day, especially when you're trying to consume 3,000, 3,500, maybe more calories, you're gonna get a lot of protein from the foods that you're thinking of as meeting your carb needs.
Right, and, and on that topic, we actually don't want to eat too much protein. And this is back to this idea that protein isn't really an energy source. It's not really going to propel us on the bike. So if we had a diet where, for example, weightlifters, they're eating 200, 300 grams of protein in a single day, they're looking for that muscle hypertrophy, that protein doesn't provide us with energy. So it is actually disadvantageous to have too much protein because those calories could be used for energy producing foods like carb based foods or fat based foods. So keep in mind, protein isn't, I, I think uh, in society they'll say, oh yeah, eat a bunch of protein, it keeps you full, it's great. Actually for our specific needs, it's actually detrimental to have too much protein because it takes away from other foods that could be giving us more energy. Well, and protein doesn't really have a, a storage medium the way carbs and fat do in the body. And you can only you can only store so much extra protein, so to speak, uh, and it's not like you have a glycogen store equivalent for proteins or a fat store equivalent for proteins. So you just have to process it and, and move it along and use what you, you use what you need at the time, more or less. I think that's that's about it for protein. It's um it's important. It's if you are doing workouts multiple days in a row, it's especially important. But it's also important not to eat too much. And um, you're probably hitting your protein goals unless you're specifically trying to avoid protein sources in your meals, which I hope you aren't doing that. I'm going to throw out this just as an aside. Uh, I was working with a, a vegan athlete. And so that was actually one of the problems she had. She's an endurance runner. And just through the nature of her diet, she wasn't being conscious about making sure she was getting those sources of protein. And so she was actually a little bit running a little bit low. And once we worked that out, things got a lot better for her in terms of her performance and recovery. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm thinking of um, vegetarian or vegan sources like beans are a good option. Nuts and seeds are you would heavily rely on as well. Tofu. Yeah, if you have special accommodations, then um, you have to look into uh, foods that match up with all your different restrictions. So uh, moving on to carbohydrates, we do have a specific episode where we talked about carbs a bit. Episode 42 was you need to eat more carbs, which is actually pretty popular. And uh, to summarize, I made the argument that you probably need to eat more carbs. But the idea is if you work out four times a week, four or more times a week, and they're all 90 minutes plus at a time, there's a significant demand on our carbohydrate stores. And we need to make sure we eat enough to keep them full. Let's go over that again. First, carbohydrates, we're going to go over the molecule a little bit. Carbs are carbon attached to a hydroxide molecule and then mushed together. So hydroxide is just OH and carbon, C. You get all the carbs are just COH in different quantities. And specifically, the smallest really usable one is glucose. And that's a ring. That's sort of the classic carb ring. And they get more complex from there. So there's fructose, which is a little bit more complex, and then maltodextrin, which I believe is uh, a fructose attached to a glucose molecule. And then they get larger and larger up to something like glycogen, which is what our body stores. Uh, small carbohydrates are called monosaccharides, if we're going to have a vocabulary test at the end. And um, larger carbohydrates are called polysaccharides. And so glycogen is a polysaccharide that's uh, normally stored in the liver, a little bit in the muscles as well, but it's composed of 8 to 12 glucose units, and they're stitched together. Uh, sort of the molecules are bonded into groups. And the way that sugar works is sugar, carbs, carbohydrates, they're, they're all synonymous. 
what happens is the energy between the bonds, the energy between the carbons and the, the hydroxide, when it breaks, there's stored energy that's released. And that stored energy is then consumed by our cells in the mitochondria in uh, different processes to produce energy effectively. Carbs are also used in the brain. They're also used in the muscles. And they're a major energy source. And specifically at moderate to high intensities, we basically have to use carbs. It's very hard to use fat once you start to get up into tempo, up towards threshold. So the importance of carbs can't be understated. We, we did a whole episode that, that was the whole point of the other episode was carbs are really important if you're ever going to go over moderate intensity. And your brain really likes carbohydrates. Muscles aside, your brain's a huge fan of carbohydrates, basically almost exclusively uses carbohydrates. But yeah, so that's just an aside. Well, and but at the end of some workouts, you feel absolutely brain dead, and that's the same thing. You you ran low on carbs for the day, and your body is telling you that by slowing down your brain processes. You, I there are definitely some rides where you come home and you lumber into the house, and you can just tell your brain's not functioning fully, and that's probably a sign one dehydration, but two likely you didn't fuel enough carbs during your workout. Yeah, absolutely. So on the topic of glycogen, this is the main storage form of carbohydrates in our body. And in terms of fueling for a cyclist, the main goal of fueling is to make sure that you have all of the glycogen you need for your next workout. And normally that means having full glycogen stores. So for most people, that's around 500 grams. There are some elite athletes who are able to store more, 600, 700 grams, but 500 is just a good round solid number. Our body produces glycogen from glucose and other sugars in the body, and the steady state rate for glycogen metabolism is about 30 grams per hour. So if we think about 500 grams, we're talking, this is 14 hours, 15 hours of work by our body to refill our glycogen stores fully. Um, and the idea is our body is using the carbs that are in our bloodstream, and this is blood sugar, the metric blood sugar, and if there's no carbs in your bloodstream, you can't have glycogen synthesis because there's no precursor, there's no glucose to turn into glycogen. When we eat carbs, the absorption rate varies. This is something also to note. Uh, it's commonly thrown around. There are these things called simple carbs, and that's something like glucose, white sugar, even like the gel packet that you would eat on your ride is a simple sugar, and that's absorbed into the bloodstream quickly. I believe it's absorbed right underneath the stomach at the very top of our small intestine. We get really good absorption rates of these sugars, especially when we need them, like during a workout. And we can absorb these simple sugars in like five to 15 minutes. They end up in our muscles. And that's from research where they added radioactive isotopes, I believe, to the sugar that people consumed. And then they were able to give them an x-ray and they could see the, the sugar light up. And the sugar was in their muscles in like five or 10 minutes. So these simple sugars, they get absorbed right away, get pushed right to the muscles. Whereas complex carbs, there's fiber, there's maybe um, some fat or some protein, and they absorb more slowly and the body takes time to digest them. And the, the difference is we don't get that instantaneous response, which might be a good thing. That instantaneous absorption really increases the sugar in our blood. 
When we have unusually high blood sugar, we our body wants to maintain homeostasis. So what happens is it, it tries to get rid of it somehow. Some of those carbs will be shuttled to fat storage. Some will be used to increase our body heat. If you ever have a big, heavy meal, you'll notice you're a lot warmer. That's your body trying to push away some of those carbs and reduce your, your high blood sugar. We also may feel more energetic. And what's actually happening when we get this sugar rush and we have this high blood sugar is we're not making glycogen because we're burning it. We're trying to move it to fat storage. We're trying to increase our heat. And so when we think about increasing our glycogen stores or building up our glycogen stores, we have to think about the rate at which we consume carbs. If we eat 150 grams of carbs at once, that's not 150 grams of carbs that go to glycogen for the next day. But if we eat 150 grams of complex carbs over three hours, that's a more steady state absorption. Our body can turn more of that into glycogen, which is really our goal. And so carbs are kind of complicated in that we don't just want carbs, we want complex carbs when we're trying to refill our glycogen stores. And during the ride, we want simple carbs where they can get absorbed into the muscles right away for use. Yep, that's absolutely true. And you know, the other piece is that when you have that big meal or you have this high concentration of energy-dense food coming right through, your body also releases insulin, right? And that's to try to store this energy for the future. And you don't actually want that because you want the energy available. And I had a professor who had a really nice analogy. And the way he described it was, think about uh, your, your mouth is sort of like one end of a bucket and the other end is your gut and your absorption. So the bucket, it doesn't actually have a bottom, it's open. And those two rates have to match. And usually the rate limiting step is not your mouth because you can <laughs> stuff a lot, of, a lot of carbs in really fast or a lot of fat in really fast. It's actually the bottom. It's actually that, that gut side is really the limiting factor of like how fast it can process it and allow those carbs to be used productively in our case for either energy or glycogen storage. Yeah, so to summarize how carbs fit into the diet, if, if you did a workout and you come home tired, you probably have close to empty glycogen stores. Your goal before your next workout is to restore those, but you can only restore those with complex carbs. So make sure you get 500 grams of glycogen, or sorry, 500 grams of complex carbs before your next workout. Don't eat too much sugar. And during the workout, eat sugar, if that's not confusing enough, Todd. Well, and maybe eat sugar right after your workout when you can process it quickly, when you need to restore energy quickly and your cells are primed to absorb it. Yep, so that's the other thing to complicate it even more is directly after workout, right, our, um, our glycogen synthesis rates increase up to three times. So we could get up to like 90 grams of glycogen synthesis directly after that hour after the workout. And that's usually what people will take advantage of with recovery drinks is trying to take advantage of that increased uh, rate of glycogen synthesis. So yes, have sugar during and just after. But other than that, have complex carbs and have plenty of them so that you have the glycogen you need to complete your next workout. And that, that's it. Carbs are done. But eat lots of them because you're probably not eating enough. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about that, we have a whole episode. Episode 42 is on uh, eating more carbs. And um, the, the, But the point here is if you work out enough and if you work out at high enough intensity, it's likely you don't have enough carbs. 
And I would argue most people, that is actually the rate limiting thing. The pro professional cyclists eat so much carbs when they're doing the higher intensity exercises. And that's because they have really long intervals. They're, they're doing eight, nine, 10 sets of four minutes at VO2 max. They're burning through so many carbs during their workouts. They need to eat those back. And I would argue that it's likely for a lot of athletes that the amount of carbs you have is the limiter in the ability to continue to do intervals. So the reason you can only do six intervals at your VO2 max is probably because you're out of carbs. Whereas if you learn to fuel properly, if you learn to eat enough in advance, you might have the energy to get that seventh or eighth. Well said. So uh, the last macronutrient is fat. We also did a specific episode on this one. Episode 52, we talked about fat metabolism, and that was focused on how do we emphasize fat during the workouts? How do we get our body to use fat? Going over the molecule itself, fat molecules are called lipids, and the shape of a liquid is there's this small, it's normally referred to as a backbone, um, but it's a connector for three chains of carbon and hydrogen. And um, the, the chains can be a variable length, but essentially they're just long lines of carbon and there's hydrogen attached to them. The two main types are saturated and unsaturated fats. And saturated fats, the chains are straight, whereas unsaturated fat, there are bends in the chain. And we don't really need to know that much more than that. It has to do with the, <laughs> the carbon double bonds. And, um, and then there's trans fat, which is... Um, you know another type of fat and the the bonds are different and in terms of our ability to fuel ourselves for cycling we, we don't need a chemistry degree or a biology degree but we, we do we should understand the difference between saturated fat and unsaturated fat because they are different on the nutrition label thank you for sparing me the chemistry lecture that i that i went through many times sure um, in in my past happy to talk about it if we need to well, I, just the argument here is, does it make us a better cyclist to know that you know saturated fat is a certain way or unsaturated fat is another way? I think the biggest thing to know is that in terms of overall health, like longevity and um, societal health, is saturated fat, it clumps more easily. And that's because the chains are fat, and so they can lay on top of each other a little more easily. Whereas unsaturated fat, the there are bends in the chains so they can't lay on top of each other as well and so saturated fat is the the straight chains they are solid at room temperature and that's because as the temperature lowers they can mush together a little bit better and turn solid whereas unsaturated fat will stay liquid and um, traditionally they'll say saturated fat is unhealthy i think recently especially in the keto diet movement um, there is some research coming out saying that some saturated fat may be okay in the diet, um, but the real concern with saturated fat is the fact that because it sits on itself more easily, it can get stuck in your arteries more easily and cause blood flow restrictions and things like that. That's not quite as important for cyclists. All right. We, we have to have a tangent here on, on this particular topic about the uh, saturated and unsaturated fat. And I'll, I'll say that my my personal research in the area is lacking a little bit, but being a PT, you have interesting patients and a particular individual is a, an early researcher on this very topic of looking and comparing saturated fat and unsaturated fat. Okay. And his, his critique, and I, I trust him given his, uh, his credentials, his critique of the more recent studies that have found 
saturated fat um, is not, you know, not as harmful as the earlier studies is that this earlier studies that he participated in and did were a metabolic ward. So they controlled everything, all the ins and the outs. They knew exactly the numbers. And some of these more recent studies haven't been as tightly controlled um, and are getting a little bit different result. And so just a, it's, you know, it's a critique from a researcher. Obviously, he has, you know, a horse in the race in terms of the particular studies that he did. But um, there's a, it's certainly an interesting critique to take uh, take into account. And like I said, I can't say that I've read all the papers to, to know all the different methods and how they were conducted. But uh, it was certainly one thing we discussed it several times. It was one thing that he pointed out was, well, you know, yes, the new studies do show that the saturated fat may not be as bad as we thought it was, but do bear in mind they didn't have as tight of a control on the diet of the participants as the studies that found it was uh, more detrimental to overall health. Right. And I'm also not an expert on saturated and unsaturated fat, but I think the good balance point that we have here is you're okay with some saturated fat. You know, butter tastes good. Animal fats are nice, you know, with different meals. And it's okay to have some of those. But for our fat content, we should be focusing on unsaturated. That's mostly because they flow through the body better. But at the end of the day, the the energy storage is the same per gram of fat. Mm-hmm. The, the amount of calories we get out of it is the same. But there may be some nuanced differences on how the body uses them. We don't, we don't really know enough, except that uh, you probably shouldn't have too much saturated fat. Now just keep that in mind, but the the big idea is maybe we should stick to liquid oils a little bit more if we can. So a little bit of a review from the fat metabolism uh, episode. We know that fat contains more energy per unit mass. Specifically for each gram of fat, there's nine calories worth of energy, whereas for each gram of carbs or protein, there's only four And that allows us to very efficiently store energy on our body in the form of fat. And each and every one of us, no matter how skinny you are, has at least some 50,000 calories worth of fat. That means that we don't need fat today. For example, protein, like you said, Todd, we don't have a way to store protein. I uh, I can't eat this protein and then use it for the next month like I can with fat. So we need protein every day. Same with carbs. We run out after we use up our glycogen stores, 500 grams. Fat, if you miss a day, if you don't eat any fat in a day, you're going to be okay. If you eat too much fat in a single day, you're going to be okay as well. Yeah, I think that's that's the key with fat, right? I think we think, oh, okay, well, you know, this person's super lean. They don't have very much fat. Oh, they have they have plenty. They have plenty of fat that can be burned as energy that they can tap into for a resource. Uh, whereas the other two are much, much more limited. But speaking of efficiency, have I mentioned to you there there was a time when brilliant minds in sports performance said, ah, fat, nine calories per gram, you know, carbs are only four, we can only mix so much sugar into a water bottle. Why don't we give cyclists like olive oil in their water so it's more efficient for them to carry energy on the bike? Um... <laughs> No, so I, I was very serious. So this, they this did. Was, is this a research paper or is this a suggestion? No, from this, a coach? no. This was this was like literally like a suggestion that I, I want. I want to say I know this was U.S. based, and I want to say this was perhaps around the '84 Olympics when we were ex- doing a lot of sports science experimentation. Mm-hmm. And one of the thoughts was like, "Well, well, for the endurance events, why don't we, you know, have them consume 
they need to, right? we knew we needed to consume energy. The science was that far. Like, hey, we need to like energy is a limiting factor. Why don't we consume fat in our water bottle? Well, you know, that didn't work out so well for any number of digestive reasons and the fact that fat isn't metabolized rapidly like carbohydrates and sugar are. But you can see where the principle wasn't terribly off if you understand that energy is a limiting factor. Right. And but the point here with fat uniquely is that the rate limiter for fat is our bo our body's adjustment to using it. And so that's sort of the whole point of the fat metabolism episode is we need to teach our body to use fat more. We have plenty of it. We don't need to take exogenous fat. We just need to teach our body to actually burn it and burn it quickly. The thing is, for carbs, we know how to burn carbs. It's There are the systems to burn carbs at high intensities very quickly. We need to teach our body to use fat and we'll never really be able to use fat as quickly as we use carbs and that's just because the energy systems don't exist physically to allow us to do that but we can teach our body to use more fat in terms of how fat fits into the diet we shouldn't be afraid of fat and that's mostly because we need fat for for some reasons such as there are fat soluble nutrients that you can only get in fats so if you had no fats you would be missing out on some of these essential micronutrients but also you get increased dependency on carbs if you only eat carbs your body sort of forgets how to use fat because well we don't need any of it so we don't use it so you should eat some fat but also if you only have a finite number of calories that you can eat in a day Carbs are probably going to help you finish your workout better than fat. The other point that I have for fat is that fat makes food more palatable, especially carbs. For example, eating rice with some olive oil and garlic, uh, that's a pretty common uh, Mediterranean food. That's a lot more palatable than you know plain brown or white rice. And so fat can be a way to help us eat more if we struggle to eat enough. Um, and like you mentioned in the fat metabolism episode, it can be a way to hit our caloric goals if we're struggling to hit them with carbs, uh, bec either because dietarily we, we don't have the appetite to eat that many carbs or because we did an eight-hour ride today and we need to consume 5,000 calories. Fat can be a way for us to hit that number and make sure we recover sufficiently. Yeah, and fat tastes good. I think that's, you know, to, to a point, right? Like certain fats just are, are very palatable the, the tongue likes them they have a nice mouthfeel from an evolutionary standpoint uh, our brains find them very desirable because they signal energy that's going to be sustainable for a long time so there are certainly reasons and i think your brain has a lot of fat in it like that is the fat is really the insulation around all your nerves you want to have fat in the body so that you have good nerve function right and at the same time this is you know that's the reason to eat fat the reason not to eat fat is one, if you go over your caloric intake, then you start to gain weight. And if you do that chronically, then you move up in a weight class and you can't go up the hills quite as quickly. That's uh, for cycling specifically, that's not advantageous. But the other thing is that you, if you don't go over your caloric demands, you miss out on the carbs that you could be eating. And that's really the, the trade-off here. We know some athletes eat higher fat content. We know some athletes eat higher carb content. As long as they're getting the glycogen they need to do their workouts, they're happy they, they did it. And so to summarize, to fit all of these together for a cyclist, I would say protein. We have some protein goal that we have. 
100, 125 grams of protein, something like that, that should be hit every day. Just make sure our body has the protein it needs to recover properly, to make sure all our bodily functions are working properly. Carbs, we need to eat enough carbs to have enough energy for the workout for today and the workout for tomorrow. And then beyond that, you can fill in the rest of your caloric needs with fat. And fat is sort of that buffer that we can choose to add a little more, choose to add a little less. And that's the thing we can adjust to control either our weight or um, the amount of calories that we take. Yeah, I think that's a, a perfect analogy, right? Really, for an endurance athlete like a cyclist, carbs have to run the show. Fat and protein are there. They're the assistants. They're super important. You can't go without them. But if you forget carbs or you don't have enough carbs, then the wheels are going to fall off pretty quickly, uh, probably more quickly than the other two on any given day. Another note is that if you aren't working out as much, you know, there are some people who cycle fewer hours. We intended for this episode to be for people who eat, uh, who work out eight hours a week. If you're working out fewer hours a week, you, you can skimp on the carbs a little bit more. Your total caloric demands will be lower. But also your carbohydrate demands will be lower because it's likely that you will have the glycogen stores you need if your total hours are lower. And so it's all dependent on your own activity level. It's also dependent on your body's ability to process carbs, your body's ability to utilize fat for energy. It's so complicated and personalized that you have to figure it out. And that's why I didn't want to get in too specific with any of these things. And hopefully big picture, you can start to see how the different macronutrients start to connect together. And you do have to do some experimentation on your own. Todd mentioned a really good technique is to, on the way home, you say, oh man, I'm pretty tired today. How many carbs did I eat? That probably wasn't enough. Next time I do this workout, I should probably eat a little bit more in advance, eat a little bit more during. Other days, oh, I had great energy today. What was my protocol? I should maintain that protocol. Oh, I'm gaining some weight, maybe I need to decrease my total caloric intake, but I have to be worried about or, or concerned about decreasing my energy or given workouts too much. And it's this constant give and take and experimentation, and it takes a long time to learn the exact nuances of it. And that's something that I would say professional cyclists, they have that dialed because they've been evaluating their diets since 14, 15, 16 that by the time they're in their early 30s, they understand how their body reacts, they understand, they can feel when they have enough energy or when they don't have enough energy, and they're able to just get everything to orchestrate perfectly. But it takes a long time and a lot of observation and a good understanding of these different macronutrients to get them to blend together correctly. The other thing I might add, I know this is going to sound a little bit goofy, but I'll back it up with my rationale for this, is it's not a bad thing to listen to what your body craves. And the reason I say this, naturally, thirst and hunger are certain drives we have for survival, right? If, if you are thirsty, you need to hydrate. That's your body's way of telling you that you need to take on some fluid to balance things out and maintain homeostasis. I'm of the opinion that our biology and our evolution has given us a fairly refined system in terms of being able to know what our body needs. We as individuals probably need to Jason's point to do a little bit of refining to understand what we're listening for. But by way of example, if you get home from a ride and 
you look at a loaf of bread on your counter and like, wow, that bread looks amazing. Right. And you start, you know, you grab a slice of bread and like, this is the most amazing bread that I've ever had. And three hours later, you're like, oh yeah, that bread's also, you know, stale and rock hard. You were probably low on carbs. And that was, but that was your body's way of telling you that you need some carbs or likewise, if it's some protein source or some other nutrient and we can go into micronutrients on another episode. But I think we're decently evolved for that sort of input. And it's, you know, the fine tuning is us learning to listen to what our body is telling us we'd like to help us understand where we might not be meeting our nutritional needs. I agree the brain has some ability to communicate to us what it thinks we need. And we can definitely add that into our considerations when we're, we're looking at the whole evaluation of, of what our demands are and what our intake is. Todd, you got anything else? I don't think so. I, I mean, I think this is a nice overview in terms of the big macronutrients. And I think there's, to Jason's point, a lot that you have to do as an individual to understand how this fits in terms of your performance. So don't expect to get the calculator out tomorrow and work out exactly how many calories you need based on your kilojoules from your ride. And that if you solve that equation, all of a sudden you're going to be flying. It's not that easy. Uh, but with a little patience and effort, I think you can certainly gain a lot in terms of your riding performance by getting that nutrition that much closer to the way it ought to be. And actually, I do, I do have one more thing. I think that it might be not a bad idea to experiment in, in crimping the amount of carbs that you have or the amount of protein you have. For example, um, Todd has definitely talked about fasted riding before, and Fasted riding is an example of where we intentionally consume too little carbs in order to get a particular stimulus. It might be a good idea to do experiments like that just to learn how your body communicates with you a bit better. If you go do a ride, you know, bring a few gels in case you get really exhausted, but go do a that ride without carbs. Gel. Yeah, go, go do a ride without carbs and see how awful you feel when you get home and, and learn about what that feeling is. So then next time you feel like that, you can say, oh, that's because I didn't have enough carbs. And same with protein, maybe maybe don't have very much protein in a day and feel how your muscles feel, how, feel how they feel sore. And next time after a workout, when they feel that same way, you said, hmm, maybe I need a little bit more protein in my diet. Be willing to experiment a little bit. Be careful. Like I said, keep that emergency gel or whatever you need, but be willing to experiment off the optimal path a bit so you can learn what it feels like to be wrong and then you can accommodate for that in the future. Yes, much better to learn that on a training ride in a controlled environment than during a race. Sure, or even worse is not to realize that's the problem. Oh, I'm so tired at the end of these races and not realize that's because your fueling was incorrect. That's equally bad that you... Mm -hmm. You didn't understand it. You weren't able to fix it. I think that's that's all I have for macronutrients. If anything else pops up for you, Todd. Nothing else. Um, as always, we do appreciate your feedback and reviews and everything. So if you do like our podcast, please send us a review and we'll be looking for that. And I suppose if there's nothing else, like I always say, thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.